Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Josh. And welcome to Trowel and Mike, a podcast on archaeology and adventure. Sadly, for Mike, he's with us today. But uh, not so sadly for me, Josh isn't. That's right, I am in isolation. So I'm coming through the phone, uh, hopefully loud and clearly. So, good times. And not even a close contact isolation. He is the contact. That's correct. That is correct, unfortunately. But, you know, we've uh, committed to getting one of these out a month. And although this is pushing the uh, pushing it a little bit, bit close, uh, we are still going to get on track for this, this podcast, thankfully. Hooray. Hooray. <laughs> well... Welcome back, everyone. Uh, last month, we introduced you all to a large number of subdisciplines and specialties of archaeology. This month, being February, we've decided on a more romantic approach to this episode. Considering how we've become a monthly podcast, we aim to start a tradition of themed podcasts and have every structured Februarys as such. That's right. We have set up this episode to explore a little bit of St. Valentine's <coughs> joke. <laughs> And I thought I was sick. Oh gosh, I just yeah caught some air in my throat. That's right. We've set up this episode to explore a little bit of St. Valentine's true story, as well as a famous couple from history, a famous archaeological couple, and a site known for its romantic connotations. We have spent a fair bit of time discussing what to talk about today, and honestly, with the sheer amount of content that we um, have found during our research, we thought it best to stick with one story from each of the categories we just mentioned. Next year, next February, we'll cover some more. But before we begin, what have we both been up to? Yeah, well, uh, the projects we've sort of whispered about down at Wollonga have been continuing. Uh, they've been a little slow just over the Christmas break, but they're now starting to pick up, pick up a bit more. There'll be some events happening in the town of Wollonga, possibly during History Month. Uh, which is May, so if you're in the area and are interested in that kind of thing, keep your eyes peeled. Other than that, I've just been working. I've been having a pretty good run. How about you, Josh? Uh, yeah, sadly, caught the uh, caught the big C. Um, just been home and uh, isolating, but I've had the chance to do some research, which is great. Um, and also, I have enrolled into Latin with Macquarie University, which is the university that mine and Matt's friend, Adam, who we interviewed late last, no, the year before last, the Egyptologist, he studied there, got his uh, got his master's. I've joined that university and I'm studying Latin there now too, which is great. So that'll be interesting. Um, but as far as that goes, I'm hoping to join uh, Matthew Wollonga in the future. And as he just mentioned before, it is National History Month um, and also National Archaeology Week happens within May. And during that time, we're going to do some research and hopefully uh, make both a podcast and potentially a couple of little short movies um, on on the work that's being done there. So, yeah, watch this space. I think May's episode will be quite an interesting and more involved uh, podcast than usual. So a lot of the research would have been done with us on site, which would be something a little bit different as opposed to hitting the books like we usually are. Failed no more. Failed no more. Now, before we get to the main topic of this podcast, let's see what's happening around the world with our pick of the best archaeology news in the last month. The following news stories have been gathered from a variety of sources, including Archaeology Magazine and the Archaeological Institute of America, Heritage Daily, Live Science, France 24, the University of Southern California and CNN News. 
I've just got two stories today. My first story is the lost city of Qatar, which I've labelled it as. I always get excited when a settlement is found in the desert. All these years, I dream about being back there. Certainly relevant to our last episode, the remains of a 3,600-year-old settlement has been discovered in the Eastern Arabian Peninsula in Qatar through remote sensing technology. Though this was admittedly an accidental discovery, as the team attributed the discovery was on a mission to track underground water, the United States Agency for Aid and International Development. The two-by-three-kilometre settlement has been named Makfia by researchers at the University of Southern California, who used satellites to record the discovery. Further analysis of charcoal samples on site have provided archaeologists with the approximate age of the site as mentioned a moment ago. Assam Hegi, or Hegi, of the university's Arid Climate and Water Research Centre stated that the site could have been a natural fortress surrounded by very rough terrain. And while we may think that deserts are largely uninhabitable, this site may have relied on groundwater to thrive. Hegi, or Hegi, also points out that whilst many people believe climate change is a problem of the future, sites like this prove that it was also a problem of the past. My second story is a couple of episodes ago, I reckon it was the first episode of Disciplinary Action, um, I mentioned the discovery of a screaming mummy in my stories. This discovery was uh, in Peru by archaeologist Peter van Dalen Luna of the State University of San Marcos. This mummy was bound by ropes and with its hands covering its face. In that episode, I mentioned that this practice wasn't uncommon, and as of mid-February, there have been updates in regards to this site. Archaeology magazine and news website France 24 have reported that further remains have since been found. The bodies of six mummified children, thought to be sacrifices, have been discovered near the previously discovered mummy, all of them bound tightly by cloth and ropes. Van Dalen stated that they would have been sacrificed to accompany the mummy to the underworld. The mummies were all discovered east of Lima at the site of Cajamaquia. I hope I said that right and are thought to be between 1,000 and 1,200 years old. Well, that's it for my stories. Matt, what did you find? A couple of new stories, both from the archaeology magazine. Start with England, first of all, where a World War II prisoner of war camp is currently being excavated in Shropshire uh, ahead of a road construction project. The camp held approximately 2,000 German prisoners and was in operation between 1940 and 1948. Some of the artefacts being discovered uh, include a German pistol, a loaded German pistol I should say, and personal objects including items uh, for personal hygiene, a toy camel made of lead alloy, that sounds like a fun one, wings from a German uniform and even a soldier's identification tag. The tag is a brilliant find as it allows researchers to tell a very personal story of one of the inmates as the serial number can identify exactly who it belonged to. For now, the tag reveals that the soldier had been a member of the 3rd Company Landesschutzenbattalion, showing that he had been captured somewhere between September 1939 to 1940, so he was a pretty long-term prisoner. And for our final news story for this month, out of Xi'an, China... A further 20 terracotta soldiers have been unearthed near the famous tomb of China's first emperor, Qi Shi Huang, who I know, I know I've pronounced it wrong. I've got my wife niggling in my ear behind me, laughing. But let's move on, because this is the sixth or eighth time I've tried to get through this story. 
Around 2,000 terracotta soldiers have been uncovered, with an estimated total of 8,000 being buried in the area. The majority of the new discoveries represent infantry and chariots, but there are a number of generals as well. These are identifiable by their elaborate headwear. And now, on to the main topic, if everyone's okay with my bad Chinese pronunciation. (laughs) It's just fine. Right, February equals Valentine's, so how can we not focus on love in archaeology? As mentioned before, in celebrating in love uh, and all things archaeology, we thought that this month we should discuss the story of St. Valentine before delving to a few of the most famous couples in history and archaeology, as well as some sites that prove that love is eternal. First up, Matthew, I reckon you're going to tackle a little bit of St. Valentine's true history. Okay, and not just St. Valentine, but also the origin of Valentine's Day altogether. Okay, the origin of Valentine's Day as we know it is a bit murky and kind of gross, so it hasn't really changed all that much over the centuries. (laughs) Yes! Oh my god, I love that! I'm so sorry, you're probably going to have to say it again. No, no, I think that's fine. I put that in there just for you. Oh, thank you. Although we directly associate the day with the Catholic Church's festival, we need to actually go back further in time and look at the pagan traditions of the day. The Romans celebrated a festival from February 13 to 15 called Lupercalia. This festival involved Roman men stripping naked and sacrificing a goat and a dog. This was followed by the men taking strips from the animals' hides and using them to whip young women who would line up to receive the treatment. All of this was performed in order to promote fertility. All right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Did not know that. No, neither did I. As well as this undoubtedly beautiful display, there was also a matchmaking lottery pairing off men and women for the duration of the festival. What's interesting to note is that the Lupercalia festival carried on for about 150 years after Christianity was legalised in the Roman Empire. And that's 140 years after it became the official religion of the empire. In the 5th century, Pope Galatius I, if I've said that right, forbid Lupercalia celebrations and established the feast day honouring the martyrdom of St. Valentine on February 14th in order to block out the old pagan rituals. This is an interesting side note. It's not the only time that the Catholic Church has used this tactic. Christmas Day, for one, is another example of burying of old pagan festivals under Christian celebrations. And it's something I wouldn't mind looking into in more depth, as I feel it is the Catholic Church adopting policies and systems which were used by the Roman Empire and the Roman Republic itself in order to assimilate other cultures uh, into their own culture. And in that sense, I'm referring to Rome's incorporation of gods and religions of other cultures which they've conquered uh, into their own pantheology uh, as a way of assimilating, annexing, incorporating those people and making them feel like they've always been a part of the empire, or a part of Rome, sorry. And I feel it shows a direct influence of Roman culture itself on the Christian church, which emerged out of the ruins of the empire. That's a topic for another time. So anyway, who was St. Valentine? Well, this is where it gets a bit murky, because with all things through history, stories become embellished. However, the most coherent story that I've been able to cobble together from 
the lots of different origin stories. They all seem to come back to a priest named Valentine. Sometimes he's referred to as Bishop Valentine of Turney, who was under house arrest for secretly marrying couples in direct violation of an edict. Uh, this was an edict from Emperor Claudius II. Uh, which forbade Roman soldiers from marrying over concerns it could affect their efficiency in battle, e.g. fearful of dying. While imprisoned, Valentine is said to have healed his jailer's blind daughter, uh, an action which saw his jailer convert to Christianity. Because of this, they were both executed. One story even tells of Valentine's interactions with Emperor Claudius, who reportedly took a liking to him until he attempted to convert him. Before his execution, Valentine supposedly wrote a letter to his jailer's daughter, who he'd healed, and signed it, From Your Valentine. Uh, and supposedly, this is what gave rise to our modern-day tradition of giving someone a Valentine's Day letter. But it wasn't until the 1500s that this tradition began to emerge. Uh, and this tradition started off with handmade paper cards being exchanged, but by the time of the Industrial Revolution commercially made printed cards were starting to be exchanged. And on an interesting other side note, apparently St. Valentine was also the patron saint of epilepsy. I did read that, yeah. I didn't read any more into it because I didn't think I needed to. No, well, it's not really relevant to what we're just trying to, uh, trying to, the story we're trying to tell here, but that's just a, that's a fun, interesting side fact, really. Yeah, yeah, that's what yeah. I thought. And yeah, it, it, makes you, it makes you kind of wonder why that's related. Perhaps... Instead of having like a full blindness, the jailer's daughter had some form of epilepsy. Well, I did read a little bit which said that um, he uh, ministered to people with epilepsy who were shunned at that point in time. Right. It's probably looked like a possession to people that didn't really understand it. That's exactly it. It, it was associated with uh, possession and demons. Yeah, right. And punishment. Good research. Thank you. So, lovely little bit of interesting uh, history on St. Valentine there, but I didn't know. Um but let's move on to a famous couple in history, Anthony, or Anthony rather, and Cleopatra. <clears throat> there is so much to say about Anthony and Cleopatra that you could easily give them their own episode, let alone an entire podcast. So what I plan to do here is give you a brief rundown on their story before drawing your attention to a more modern story that is sure to pique your interest. Mark Anthony and Cleopatra are arguably one of, if not the most famous couple in history. Indeed, Cleopatra alone has been regarded as one of the embodiments of the feminine identity. One of the sources I've used at the 70 Great Mysteries of Ancient Egypt by archaeologist Bill Manley, he quotes Shakespeare's play, Antony and Cleopatra, as one of but many mediums Cleopatra has featured. From this play in 1604 to much more contemporary society, poor Cleo has had her face and figure portrayed in paintings, cinema, romance novels, and even advertisements. As stated in Manley's works, she personifies the passionate beauty ready to die for love, the ruthless and ambitious woman, and the death-bringing seductress. But how much do we truly know about Cleopatra? As I mentioned just a moment ago, this topic itself could use a whole podcast to explore. So let's move past her image and her mystery and consider what little we do know. Cleo was born in 69 BC as the second daughter of Ptolemy XII, the Greek ruler who had become a pharaoh of Egypt under what became known as the Ptolemaic dynasty. From his death in 51 BC, both Cleopatra and her brother, Ptolemy XIII, became co-rulers of Egypt. Through sibling rivalry and domestic dispute, yes, they were siblings and married. 
Ptolemy mm. expelled Cleopatra from Egypt in 48 BC. Yet, with the assistance of Rome and one Julius Caesar, Cleopatra's future as the Queen of Egypt was solidified and her brother was killed. Caesar and Cleo became lovers, and after a year she gave birth to a son named Caesarian, the term for little Caesar. I'm not sure if this has any relation to the process in which a birth can be administered via cutting open the stomach, um, but I don't know, that's something to that's something to look into. You can do it. I don't want to. Only four years later, Julius Caesar was assassinated in the Senate of Rome. Despite being stabbed 23 times by the senators, he was apparently admired by the people of Rome. Yeah, well, that's interesting. What's he got to do with the salad, though? Yeah, that's a fun fact, actually. Um, the Caesar salad was actually invented in Tijuana, Mexico, in the 1920s by a dude called Caesar. How's that? Owned a restaurant chain during the Prohibition. Regardless of the salad and the Senate, Caesar's successors came to power to rule in his absence. These successors were Augustus Caesar, also known as Octavian, who was Julius Caesar's nephew. There was the high priest, priest Marcus Aemilius Lepidus and the charismatic Mark Antony. Octavian was determined to consolidate power in Rome, whilst Mark Antony continued focusing on securing foreign power, as did Julius Caesar before him. In doing so, Mark Antony and Cleopatra became quite close. According to historian Tom Head, he wrote that Antony and Cleopatra became collaborators, lovers, and potentially future rulers of the emerging Roman Empire. Through the writings of the classics, including Plutarch and Lucius Cassius Dio, we have learned a lot about Antony and Cleopatra. For example, though it is contested whether or not Cleopatra was indeed beautiful, she has been described as having outstanding intelligence, vivacity, and sparkling conversation. And as she supposedly wooed Antony away from his wife, I think we can agree that looks aren't everything. Certainly not in your case, Josh. No, oh, indeed. Antony and, Cleopatra, <laughs> Antony and Cleopatra developed a strong relationship over many years, marrying in 32 BC. But as the relationship between these two strengthened, the relationship between Antony, Octavian and Rome in general began to falter. In the same year as their marriage, Octavian declared war against the couple and after two years of fighting, it all came to an end. As the stories go, both Antony and Cleopatra committed suicide rather than being captured and humiliated. Antony achieved this by falling on one sword, as it is often put in older accounts. Cleopatra's suicide, however, is often debated. Some say she poisoned herself, but the most famous and certainly the most portrayed in the media is that she died of a snake bite from an Egyptian asp. Um, excuse me, a what? Asp. I see. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although the Egyptian ass can be quite smelly. I rode one in <laughs> Egypt. Um, <laughs> following the death of Antony and Cleopatra, Octavian changed his name to Augustus Caesar and became the first emperor of the Roman Empire. Branded as traitors to the Romans, but supposedly adored by the Egyptians, the fates of the bodies of Antony and Cleopatra remain a mystery. The Romans would have likely disposed of them in some manner, while the Egyptians would have given them a more honourable and traditionally Egyptian burial, so it is believed. This has become one of the greatest archaeological mysteries of our time. Where is the tomb of Antony and Cleopatra? Honestly, until very recently, I hadn't heard much on the topic. That is until I was introduced to an article on a Dr. Kathleen Martinez, a lawyer-turned-archaeologist hailing from the Dominican Republic, who has devoted her life to finding the answers to this mystery. Like Matthew and I, Dr. Martinez wanted to be an archaeologist since she was very, very young, but she had trouble pursuing that career and instead opted to study law. Recently, however, she left her job 
her husband and her life in the Dominican Republic in order to pursue her dream of becoming an archaeologist and discovering the tomb of Antony and Cleopatra. In an interview with The National, an Egyptian news company, Dr. Martinez stated the following regarding her motivations. If the world was crazy about King Tut, it would be way crazier about Cleopatra's tomb if found. Besides the scientific value of finding it, can you imagine what it would do to tourism in Egypt? Cleopatra was the final chapter of ancient Egypt, while King Tut was just a boy who did little for Egypt, but attracted much attention, essentially because his tomb was found intact. It's very true, if you know much about Egyptian history, mm. Tut wasn't really enjoyed very much, and mainly because of his dad, Akhenaten, who was the heretic pharaoh. But that's oh, for another podcast. Of course. Since moving to Egypt, she has spent 15 years digging for the truth and from studying ancient texts from hieroglyphic steles and papyrus, uh, papyrus to the works of medieval Arabians, she believes she has found the temple in which they're housed, Tapasiris Magna. The remains of this temple are situated about 50 kilometres west of Alexandria, the city wherein both Antony and Cleopatra had initially planned to be buried. Alexandria, for those who don't know, Egypt is the city that is within the Nile Delta, which is just south of the Mediterranean Sea. So it's, one, it's probably the biggest city um, in northern Egypt, right by, the, right by the ocean. Think of the big stone uh, lighthouse, which we covered, the Pharos, in our <laughs> Seven Ancient Wonders, was it, Josh, or was it Nine Ancient Wonders podcast? Um, and, yeah, that's where the Library of Alexandria was as well, where it was sadly destroyed. The article about Dr. Martinez that I read was only released in late December last year. And apart from following her Instagram and reading a few posts in Spanish, it appears she hasn't found the tomb. Though she claims she's very close, having confirmed that the temple in question was sacred and in use during Cleopatra's time. As the search continues, I'll be sure to update everyone on any news. And now, having looked at a famous couple in history, let's look at a famous couple in archaeology. Over to you, Matt. Right, yes. So uh, initially I wanted to talk about Mortimer and Tessa Wheeler. However, Josh brought another couple to my attention and given the timing, it seemed better to focus on these two lovebirds. While I had heard of one of these people before, I knew nothing of their relationship to archaeology until Josh pointed it out. This couple is Max Malawan and none other than Agatha Christie. Yes, the Agatha Christie hit murder mystery novelist. Max Mallowan was a prominent British archaeologist specialising in ancient Middle Eastern archaeology. His work was focused on sites such as Tel Apachia in Iraq and Chagar Bazaar and Tel Brak in Syria. Mallowan was also the first archaeologist to investigate sites in the Balik Valley and after World War II would become the director of the British School of Archaeology in Iraq, directing its resumption of work at the site of Nimrud in Iraq. Malawan and Christie met in 1930 on the site of the Mesopotamian city of Ur, which was being studied by Leonard and Catherine Woolley, another archaeological couple who will no doubt cover at some point down the line. Before this meeting, Christie had discovered a passion for archaeology when she had taken a trip to Iraq shortly after divorcing her first husband. From Baghdad, she visited Ur, where she met Catherine Woolley, who was a big fan of her stories. To quote from Christie's autobiography, The lure of the past came to grab me. To see a dagger slowly appearing with its gold glint through the sand was romantic. 
The carefulness of lifting pots and objects from the soil filled me with a longing to be an archaeologist myself. We've all been there. Mm-hmm. The pair must have really hit it off because the 25-year-old Maloan and the 39, almost 40-year-old Christy married later that same year, the same year that they met. Lending weight to the theory that partners of archaeologists should never have to worry because as they get older, their partner becomes more interested in them. I forgot that was, yeah, that quote was attributed to Agatha Christie. Oh, was it actually? Oh, there you the go. More, yeah, the older, yeah, the older she gets, the more interested he gets in her. Cause she, cause oh, there you go. Like, <laughs> Quite funny. From 1931 onwards, Malouane and Christie would spend nearly every autumn and spring working in the Middle East, summer in England and the remainder of the time at home or travelling. Christie funded most of Malouane's expeditions to the Middle East and also took charge of the camp, managing supplies and organising the local labourers. Later, as she became more experienced with archaeological fieldwork, she also took on jobs such as cataloguing, illustrating and restoring artefacts. She even discovered that her diluted face cream acted as a perfect ivory cleaner. have to remember that. <laughs> Definitely. I didn't realise she was so focused on the actual archaeological work. Yeah, I, knew she, she, uh, I knew she took part in the excavations, or, but I, I just imagine she kind of watched over it and just wrote about it. Yeah, so from what I, I saw while I was reading up on it, she took a pretty active role in it, and she the more she learnt, the more she got involved, and she loved sharing the work with Max. It, it seemed like a true partnership, which yeah. is what I'm basically oh, about to say. So why choose this couple over the wheelers? Well, Christy used her journeys as inspiration for many of her mystery novels, including Death on the Nile, which is now a hit motion picture. See it in your cinemas now. <laughs> While I haven't seen it yet, and Josh is busy incubating COVID, I have read how the story is inspired heavily on Christy and Malouane's own travels along the Nile on a cruise ship. Have you actually read the story, Josh, or seen any of the adaptions of it? I've seen the original movie, um, and I saw it after I'd gone to Egypt, and it was filmed on site. Like, it was breathtaking. It was great to see Hippostyle Hall in Karnak, in the Karnak Temple, and Luxor, and um, Abu Simbel, and, and the Nile. Yeah, it's all set on a little cruise ship on the Nile. So it, it's a fantastic story, and you can absolutely tell that Whoever wrote it, and in, in this case directed the film, really appreciated the splendour of Egypt. Yeah, well, apparently the cruise ship that they rode on is still around and even have the suite, or at least the suite they claim, that Max and Agatha uh, stayed in while on the ship. Ah, I was on a Feluca, which is like a little sailboat, um, and we passed we passed uh, Agatha Christie's um, hotel. She used to stay in on the Nile as well. I've got a problem with it. It's beautiful. Um, but, yeah, I, I can't really explain too much about it. I saw it back when I was 19, so a long time ago. But, yeah, it, it, it's since gained a lot of fame because that's where she used to sit, arguably with Max, and write some of her novels. So. Yes, mm. well, I did read how uh, – I'm not sure if Max went back, but after this initial trip with Max, she did return – to write the novel, but I didn't say if Max went with her on that particular trip. So, yeah, if you're interested, go see the movie. I've heard a couple of people say it was good, but, again, I haven't read the book, I haven't seen any of the adaptions, and I haven't seen the new movie yet, so we'll see. I think we're due another movie night. 
Yes, probably. Uh, and to finish up, both Malawan and Christie are, in my opinion, a perfect Valentine's Day archaeological couple as their partnership seems to have formed a very successful working relationship. Both complemented each other and allowed themselves uh, to both pursue not only their passions but also professional careers. Right. Well done. That was good. Right. So we've covered a famous, famous couple in history and a famous couple in archaeology. How about a famous site? Famous couple within a site. Well, there is one, and uh, this leads back to the picture of me and Matthew. Um, <laughs> so the picture of Matthew and I, shamelessly added to the movie poster, Romance of the Stone, was originally intended to highlight the themes of romance that this podcast is all about. Uh, so to encapsulate that element of Valentine's Day. So actually calling this episode Romance in the Stone Age was just to give the title an archaeological theme. However, the following site means that this title is actually more relevant. So introducing the Lovers of Valdaro. The Lovers of Valdaro is a name given to a Neolithic couple found buried together in the village of Valdaro, Italy. Neolithic is the term given to the most recent Stone Age, neo meaning new and lithic meaning stone. This period in time is argued, but many scholars agree that it spans roughly between 10,000 BC and 2000 BC. So a fairly long time ago. These lovers were discovered in a tomb in 2007, buried together in an embrace for the last 6,000 years. Indeed, the careful excavations revealed that the skeletal remains of a man and a woman approximately aged in their 20s, were buried face-to-face with their arms and legs intertwined. Wowee, that's a long time to be hugging. Oh, yeah. (laughs) The archaeologist leading the excavations, Elena Maria Mimotti, stated that while she has taken part in digs all over Italy, nothing has excited her or moved her more than this. (laughs) Efforts to study the Stone Age couple have been tricky, as reckless excavation and removal could move them from their unique position. In an effort to preserve this internal embrace, Minotti decided to remove the couple together within a chunk of earth in order to undertake a more scientific examination. I bet she did. (laughs) (laughs) That was good. Ah, terrible. However, aside from the age, gender and size of the skeletons, they're both about five foot, forensics have been unable to determine exactly how the couple died. Though violent death was unlikely, and what is likely is that the couple were positioned together when they were laid to rest all those millennia ago. Despite not having all the answers, the lovers of Valdaro remain a significant find and a symbol of everlasting love. Since their discovery and subsequent analysis, the two have been put on permanent display at the Archaeological Museum of Mantua in Italy, still holding each other tight. It's really a beautiful excavation. If you do get the opportunity, just look them up online, Valdari, V-A-L-D-A-R-O. It looks like they're holding each other's head, looking into each other's eyes and hugging. It's For a couple that died 6,000 years ago, it's just incredible that they're being preserved, holding each other in this embrace for all this time. And like the studies have suggested, there's no violent death there. Chances are they were found together and they were just buried um, as during the Neolithic period feral customs were developing um, and there was that respect for, for life and death um, and you know, those practices were being developed. So someone has buried them together in that position, which I think is beautiful. Yeah. And there is a lot of mystery surrounding 
burials at that time as well because it is so far in the past like i think we said in the last podcast it's just very hard to uh very hard to figure it out because they're so far removed from the traditions we have today that's correct and when i was reading about this couple here um they were saying that during this period in time mutual burials like double burials are very very rare so it's Mm. usually just a single body and a burial but to have these two together is incredibly rare, but to have them in the position they're in is the first of any kind of burial in that nature within that period. Yeah, that because because a lot day, of times, yeah, because a lot of times as well, as well they find dismembered body parts or, or skeletal remains because they think that there was some butchery involved after death as well, or they'd let the body decompose a bit and then they'd pull the bones away. And I don't know a lot about it myself, but I, I've heard some bits and pieces. Yeah, there's different different rituals, different practices. You know, mm. there's different ways bodies are displayed. I mean, there's some there are some tribes um, that I think would be fascinating to talk about in future podcasts, where they actually have kept their ancestors mummified and within shrines on site, so yeah. that they can go and talk to them still. Yeah, it's a little bit. It probably seems a little bit creepy for us, or you know, a little bit, I guess, unpleasant in some degree. But I mean, you have to go full anthropology and consider what's going through their minds, how they're interpreting this, you know, Definitely. it's a way of making them live a little longer or extending their memory. You know, we have photographs back in the day. They, they had their preserved bodies. So And cave walls. You're correct. Correct. But yeah, like as far as, um, as far as this site goes, we have covered a little bit of history of the romance and archaeology and proof that, Love never truly dies. Oh. No, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I had to say something, Sappy. But look, if you feel the need to further explore this topic, uh, we've compiled a list of sources that you may find of interest. So number one, uh, Blood and Treasure on CBS. You might have a bit of trouble sourcing this one, but I loved it. The show is called Blood and Treasure, and it came out in 2019. It traces the story of a professional art thief called Lexi Vaziri and a guy called Danny McNamara, who has my dream job. He's a former FBI art crime detective and antiquities trafficking expert. Following the discovery of Cleopatra and Mark Antony's tomb, but not their sarcophagi, a former professor of Danny's barely survives a site being ransacked by terrorists. The series focuses on the ex-antiquities cop and the antiquities thief, tracking down the sarcophagi and solving the mystery once and for all. This is your typical adventure mystery romp and worth a watch if you're a fan of series like Uncharted or the movie on Netflix at the moment, Red Notice. Hmm. Uh, number two, though it is yet to be released, um, there's a film called The Lost City that perfectly fits the theme of archaeology and romance. With an all-star cast, including Sandra Bullock, Channing Tatum, Brad Pitt and Daniel Radcliffe, it looks like it could be a lot of fun. Matthew, Matthew mentioned this movie, um, sent a link across in the group chat not too long ago, um, and the premise behind the film is that it follows Sandra Bullock, who portrays a romance novelist, and Channing Tatum, who is the cover model for the books, as they are thrust into a real-life story not unlike her novels. The trailer is out, but you'll have to wait until March to see it. Trying to find a lost city in the middle of the jungle whilst fighting off revolutionaries and yeah, whatnot. It looks quite interesting. Um, there's not much I can say about it because there's only a trailer available, but that's the premise of it, and it looks very good. Looks very funny. It does. Um, <clears throat> one more recommendation from me than a few from Matthew. So, next is When Women Ruled the World by Kara Cooney. 
Though I have not read this book, I'm a big fan of Professor Kara Cooney. She is a brilliant Egyptologist who our friend Adam introduced me to a while ago. She has written a number of books on women in Egypt, particularly the female fairy Hatshepsut, whose massive tomb is just outside of Luxor, not too far from the Valley of the Kings. In this book, When Women Ruled the World, Professor Cooney focuses her attention on the most powerful women in Egypt, including Cleopatra, and discusses how, though sadly rare, women were sometimes the most powerful people in history. It's a beautiful examination of women actually being in power and not being a pawn, as is most well, was most common in a lot of other historical stories from around the world. So it's an interesting evaluation, I guess, examination of some of the most powerful women in history. So definitely worth a look. Mm. It's interesting, actually, because in ancient Japan, a lot of the early emperors were actually empresses. And eventually, however the system shifted to very patriarchal and women were not allowed to take the throne. And it's still essentially that today. I don't think uh, a woman can actually sit as the head of the royal family in Japan. It's an interesting shift and something I've been wanting to look into myself, actually. Might be an interesting, um, might be an interesting podcast in the future. Like I wouldn't mind reading uh, Arakuni's book. Okay, number four, we've got Malawan's memoirs, Agatha and the Archaeologist, and Come, Tell Me How You Live, an archaeological memoir. These books appeared when doing research for this podcast, and though neither of us have read them, how could we not include a book written by the individuals who we've focused a good portion of this podcast on? The first, Malawan's memoirs, Agatha and the Archaeologist was an autobiography written by Max Malawan himself and recounts his archaeological career and life with Agatha Christie and how these two passions entwined together. The second, Come Tell Me How You Live, an archaeological memoir, was written by Agatha Christie and follows her husband's trip to the Middle East on their first archaeological adventure together. Both books capture not only the love they have for each other, but the appreciation they both share for each other's professions. As you mentioned before, it comes across very clearly when you read up on the topic. It does. <laughs> Number five, as mentioned earlier, Death on the Nile, but also adding in another one, Murder in Mesopotamia. Both written by Agatha Christie, Death on the Nile and Murder in Mesopotamia are murder mysteries featuring Hercule Poirot, a Belgian detective with a moustache that rivals my own. Murder in Mesopotamia was released in 1936 and is set within an archaeological excavation in Iraq. The archaeological site is said to be reminiscent of the Royal Cemetery at Ur in Mesopotamia, and it is where Agatha and Max visited and worked during their archaeological adventures. Death on the Nile, on the other hand, was originally released a year later in 1937 and had a focus within Egypt. The novel and the movie adaption, including another adaption, which is in cinemas at the moment, as we said earlier, include many ancient Egyptian sites and cities such as Luxor, Aswan, Karnak and Abu Simbel. Within the story, Poirot makes the connection between archaeological survey and detective work, stating, Once I went professionally to an archaeological expedition. Oh, sorry, I should be saying this. Once I went professionally to an archaeological expedition, and I learned something there. In the course of an excavation, when something comes out of the ground, everything is cleared away very carefully all around you. 
You take away the loose earth and you scrape here and there with a knife until finally your object is there, all alone, ready to be drawn and photographed with no extraneous matter confusing it. This is what I have been seeking to do, clear away the extraneous matter so that we can see the truth. <laughs> it's, it's a brilliant point uh, because there are so many books I've read, so many lectures I've listened to or watched, so many things I've read. Like even in primary school where they say archaeology work is like detective work. And I didn't know this. And I found this quote and, and I, like, I just I knew I had to put it in because I think it's so it, – it beautifully encapsulates the fact that Agatha Christie did in fact work with her husband, Max, and – She's made one of her leading characters go on an excavation. And so this this line that you've just said, Matt, was from Murder in Mesopotamia. Mm -hmm. But the actual line was used in Death on the Nile. Yeah, and right. so it was in reference to Mesopotamia. Because uh, while he was there, he was on the archaeological expedition. That's the first – or one of the oh, – I see. Like, it. In it was the first case he solved. And God, so to come on right. Death on the Nile, which was written the year after – He's gone and said this, and he's made that collaboration. Yeah, uh, right. collaboration. He's made that. Um, he's made that connection between archaeology, like meticulous archaeology work, and finding clues to uncover the truth, and detective work, and finding clues to uncover the truth. And I think it's, it beautifully sums it up. And even the the language and the wording of that is very similar to that quote from Agatha Christie's autobiography uh, that I uh, mentioned earlier. The, the language is very similar and the feeling behind both of these quotes is very similar and you can tell they're coming from the same person, I think. I love it. I think it's beautiful. Okay, and the final uh, recommendation, number six. This relates to Mark Antony and Cleopatra and you can't go past the classic movie Carry On Cleo. It's a very, very fictitious take on... Mark Antony and Cleopatra story, but it is very funny and very slapstick hilarious. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with the Carry On movies, it's a British comedy. Uh, a lot of them came out during the 60s, and it just follows the story of Antony and Cleopatra and Julius Caesar. It stars uh, Sid James as Mark Antony and Kenneth Williams as Julius Caesar and the usual cast who are in these movies. And... Out of it comes the brilliant line, infamy, infamy. They've all got it, infamy. Delivered perfectly by Kenneth as Caesar. So if you want a very fictional, very historically inaccurate, but very fun movie, carry on, Cleo. Yeah, def definitely way. Like, uh, from what you've shown me, it's, it definitely has its romantic side. But as I mentioned earlier, it perfectly portrays Cleopatra as like a figure of just the height of feminine beauty and, and desire. Like she's in her like classical or ancient Egyptian garb. She's very beautiful, like exactly the way that she's been portrayed in classical texts and onwards. So it's, yeah, it's worth it if you want a quick laugh and certainly relevant to what we've been discussing here today. Very funny. That's it from us today. Uh, thanks for listening to us and we hope you've had a nice Valentine's Day this year. Please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and CastBox to keep in touch with us. We would love to hear from you. Any ideas relating to future podcasts, anything you want us to investigate for you, 
please send it our way. We would love to get involved. We would love you to get involved. And, yeah, it would honestly mean a lot to us. And Thanks. we need all the help we can get. We need all the help we can get. We do. We do. Just because we're not failing anymore doesn't mean we're not struggling. Oh, <laughs> boy, are we struggling. Oh, another bit of news that I have mentioned briefly in a Instagram post is that um, a friend of mine has released two themes for us. So we actually have some theme music. You would have heard it at the start of this podcast. You'll hear it when we stop talking in a moment. Um, but I am currently working with Matt to make some film clips for both these tracks, which will pop onto both Facebook and Instagram and YouTube as well. Once I get the once I get the music video finished uh, for both of these, so yeah, get excited if you're a blues fan. Um, get excited. Uh, his name is JJ Chilbuck. You can find him on Spotify. He's excellent. So keep an keep an ear out, I should say, uh, as his content will be joining some of our posts very shortly. Thanks again, and tune in for our next get-together in which we'll be looking at... Josh? I have decided we're going to look into the history and archaeology of Uncharted, the movie. Not the game this time. Yeah. So as fans of the video game series, um, I'm a a massive Uncharted fan. So so are you. I think we both went and saw the movie, which did kind of draw away from the, the video games a little bit, but it was still... Really, really good, and yeah, a lot better than I was expecting. I was expecting a nice archaeology romp, or like a historical sort of action-adventure romp, and I got exactly what I was after and had some great Easter eggs for big fans of the series like myself and Matt. And while it's fresh, while it's new, uh, and while it's you know, interesting and a lot of people will be seeing it, I think it's our time to you know, quickly hammer home the myth and reality of what Uncharted, the movie, has given us. So... Yeah, stay tuned for next month. See ya. Bye for now. (laughs) (laughs) Aristotle, roll the music. Say again? I said, Aristotle, roll the music.